0: Chapter 5. The reason I started chapter 5 last time is because I had gone through and figured out a difficult translation, and I wanted to get that while it was still fresh in my mind, but I can now do it, so we'll do it uh, on the fly. Hosea chapter 5. Hear this, O priests, pay attention, O house of Israel, give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. Verse 2 is the hard verse. The best translation I have seen of that is in the Revised Standard. Verse 2 in Revised Standard is, And they have made deep the pit of Shittim, but I will chastise all of them. And the reason I like that is, A, it corresponds with the machine translation of Hebrew. In other words, I have an interlinear Hebrew, which just does a mechanical translation, and the RSV matches that. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I'm not a translator. And the people who did the English Standard and the Tanakh are. I have no idea why they picked the words that they did, but they're impossible for me to understand. So let me read five again, and I think you'll see why it makes more sense. Hear this, O priest. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor, and they have made deep the pit of Shittim. But I will chastise all of them. So you have a snare, you have a net, and you have a pit. All of those are things that you use to trap stuff. That's why I like the English Standard Translation, is because it it flows with the way the paragraph feels. Mizpah, Tabor, and Shittim are all places that are in the Northern Kingdom. And of course, this is all addressed to the Northern Kingdom. So the idea here is that the priests and the king have been preying on the people. So the priests, the House of Israel and the king have set snares and spread nets and dug pits with the idea that it's the people who are being ensnared. So the government if you will, is preying on the people. Verse 3, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. One of the things that you may hear about this is, what do you mean their deeds don't permit them to return to their God? Can you get to a point where repentance doesn't work? And the answer is yes, first off. But you need to read the whole thing. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God because or for the spirit of whoredom is within them. In other words, they have got this unclean spirit about them so that their repentance is, in fact, not sincere. And we'll see that in a minute when we get further down. So the idea here is not that they have gone to the place where they couldn't repent and come back, they have gone to a place where they're incapable of repenting. If they were able to do true repentance and true turning back to God, it's my belief that God would heal their wounds. But because of the spirit that they've picked up, they are not capable of doing true repentance. Verse 5, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. A couple of different translations of verse 5. The way it's written in the English Standard, which is what I just read, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. The sense of that is Israel is enmeshed in pride, and their pride testifies of itself. They've gone away from God, they have committed uh, idolatry, they have committed moral prostitution, and they are proud in it, and so their pride testifies before them. Another. Translation. Now I'm in the Tanakh. Israel's pride shall be humbled before his very eyes. I can see either translation. I really kind of like the English Standard translation. You know, this idea that their face is hard in their idolatry and they're not able to repent. And now we picked up Judah. So we had Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with him. So now we're going to be also talking about Judah. Verse 6, with their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. So the idea here is with their flocks and herds, they go to seek him. What that means is they are coming to sacrifice. In other words, they are seeking the Lord, bringing flocks and herds. And what God is saying is, you guys have dealt faithlessly with me. Your flocks and herds are of no interest to me. What you're doing is you are coming back to me in the form of religion, but you are unable to repent because you have this spirit of whoredom on you, so I am not going to accept your sacrifices. How do you reconcile God withdrawing from them with the verse that Yeshua says that I will never leave you nor forsake you? the thing that occurs to me is who will not leave or forsake? Yeshua. That doesn't say anything about you leaving or forsaking him. And so what's happened here with Israel is Israel has turned and has left and has forsaken the Lord. So the Lord is now saying, that's what you want. Okay. And I believe Yeshua would say the same thing. In fact he'll talk later on in the book about the fact that Ephraim is not in fact completely lost and at some point they will be returned but what's happening now is they are in trouble and so when they're in trouble they turn to the Lord and they show up with their goat in hand saying okay time to sacrifice to God we're in trouble and God is saying don't bother and I believe Yeshua would say the same thing that if you have gone away from him and you have gotten yourself in trouble and you come scurrying back with your metaphorical goat in hand, I think he just looks at you and say, You still have the spirit of fordom on you. I believe God is consistent, Old Testament and New Testament. Verse seven. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. The new moon reference in verse seven may refer to this king, Shalom, who only reigned for a month. The other thing I was thinking, and what I'm thinking is not any better than that, but it's what I was thinking beforehand, so I'll tell you, is it's saying of the northern kingdom, your time's up, because Hosea was the last prophet to prophesy before the destruction of the northern kingdom. The new moon reference may, in fact, refer to this King Shalom, or it may simply be an indication, time's up, time to go out of the pool, and I don't know. Verse 8. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound the alarm at beth We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Gibeah is in the saddle of Benjamin. Ramah is also in the saddle of Benjamin, and Beth Aven is in the saddle of Benjamin. Bethaven is Bethel. You remember when the northern kingdom split off from the southern kingdom, Jeroboam put a golden calf at Bethel and a golden calf at Dan. After he put the golden calf at Bethel, the reference to Bethel in Scripture was changed from Bethel to Beth Aven, which means house of wickedness. When we're talking Beth-Avon here, we're talking Bethel, And notice that all of these towns are in the saddle of Benjamin. So we follow you, O Benjamin. I don't know what that means, but every town we're talking about is Benjamin. One of the things that's going to happen is when the Assyrians come down and clean out the northern kingdom, they are going to stop short of Jerusalem, which means that they are going to get to the saddle of Benjamin. And that may be where they stop. If Ram shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. What we're talking about is princes of Judah, leadership, and one who moves a landmark is somebody who steals property in the night. The Torah forbids you to move landmarks because your land is marked with stones and so forth. And so if somebody in the middle of the night comes out and moves those stones, what he's done is he's stolen part of your land without conquering it fair and square. So what it's saying here is that princes of Judah have become like those who move a landmark, which is to say they are secretly stealing the substance of their people. And remember this is in the context of the princes and the priests of Ephraim who are preying on their people essentially Judah is being accused of something very much the same. Verse 11, Ephraim is oppressed crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. Moth and dry rot moth obviously eats wool so especially if you live in tents made out of wool or or animal having moth is not a good thing. And then dry rot of course is rotting wood. So he says, I'm like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. So what he's saying is, this destruction that I am bringing upon Ephraim in Judah is something that is eating away secretly. I have some Persian rugs, and I sent them out to be cleaned. And the guy that was cleaning them looked at it and said, there have been moths in this rug. And you look at it, standing up, you can't see it. But when you get down, you can see where the nap has been chewed off read against the knots by moths. So moths are something that stealthily steal value, as does dry rock. 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he was not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away, I will carry off, and no one shall rescue." So when Ephraim saw his sickness, in other words, when Ephraim looked at his rug and recognized that it had been eaten away by moths and the value was gone, he goes to Assyria to cure his sickness, which is to say he tries to make an alliance with Assyria. What God is saying is that isn't going to work because I am going to be like a lion, and Assyria is not going to be able to heal you. So an alliance with Assyria is not going to fix anything. And indeed, Judah tries to make an alliance with Egypt, and that doesn't work either. So once God has determined that they're going to go into exile, they're going to go into exile. Alliances or any of that kind of stuff is not going to help them a bit. Verse 15, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly seek me. Now that reminds me very much of last week's gospel reading. Matthew 23, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken and desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yeshua is saying the same thing that God the Father is saying back here in Hosea. You are at the point where none of the stuff that you normally do is going to work because you're going into exile. And you're not going to come out of exile until you earnestly seek me. Verse 39, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jehovah says in Hosea 5.15, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress, earnestly seek me. So the idea is things are really going to get rough here. It's going to look like I've abandoned you because I have turned my face, and my face is going to stay turned until you do true repentance and you turn and seek my face. Onward to chapter 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, that he may bind us up. Okay, now this is Israel speaking. So what they're saying is things are bad right now, so come, let us return to the Lord. Recognizing that the Lord has torn them and, and struck them, they're going to ask him to heal them and bind them up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. What does that sound like to you? Sounds like the resurrection to me. So the idea of Yeshua being in the grave for three days is a thoroughly Old Testament concept. Verse 3. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. I will suggest to you that this little speech in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3 is very much like what you would get in any Christian church when they say, he won't leave us or forsake us, and what's going to happen is going to be very unsettling, because God's not going to hear them. But notice that they are quoting the scripture. He'll come back, he'll heal us, he'll do what he said, that kind of thing verse 4 what shall I do with you O Ephraim what shall I do with you O Judah your love is like a morning cloud like the dew that goes early away what he's saying here is you have turned back to me because you're in trouble but you've done that before Your turning back to me is like a morning cloud like the dew that goes early away As soon as the Sun comes up it's gone so what God is saying is I ain't buying it. Verse 5. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Going back up into chapter 5 where it says they're coming with their flocks and herds. What he's saying here is, hey guys, we've done this before. You brought sacrifices and everybody's fallen down and put sackcloth and ashes on and all that kind of stuff, and as soon as the problem goes away, you're right back chasing after your idols. This time, it isn't going to work. He says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Up in verse 4, he says, your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. In other words, your love is not steadfast. And what I want is steadfast love, and what you're giving me is situational love. I'm down to verse 7 in chapter 6. I'm going to read this in two translations because the sense is very different in the two translations. I'm going to start with English Standard. So verse 7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Now, if I'm going to read it from the Tanakh, but they, to a man, have transgressed the covenant. This is where they have been false with me. The reason I don't like the English Standard, which is, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There isn't a formal covenant with Adam. I know dispensationalists cobble a covenant in there. They say it was a covenant of innocence. But there isn't an actual covenant, as in breit, with Adam. In the English Standard, it sort of reads like there was a covenant with Adam that he transgressed which is why I like either King James or the Tanakh, which is, but they to a man have to transgress the covenant, which is to say, the ones with whom he does have a covenant, which is Israel, have transgressed it, and they have dealt faithlessly with God. Verse 8, Gilead, which is in the northern kingdom, is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, So the priests band together, they murder on the way to Shechem, they commit villainy. So the idea here is the priesthood, who is supposed to be shepherding the people, is in fact preying on the people. Verse 10, In the house of Israel I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. Again, this is a hard one to translate. Uh, The Tanakh translates verse 11. Even Judah has reaped a harvest of you. Um, I'm not sure what it means, but you all know your history. There's over a century between the destruction of the northern kingdom and the destruction of the southern kingdom. So this very well may be Judah, You need to pay attention to what's about to happen, or there's going to be a harvest for you also. All right, so now on to chapter 7. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria. Samaria is the capital of Ephraim, of the northern kingdom. For they deal falsely. The thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside. He's saying, when I would heal Israel. In other words, it has been my desire to heal Israel. But when I did that, their iniquity was revealed. In other words, it's sort of like you know, trying to rake up a bed in the garden, and the more you rake, the more junk comes up, that kind of a thing. And the evil deeds of Samaria, again, are talking about government. Because Samaria was the seat of government for the northern kingdom. It would be the same as the evil deeds of Washington. And then they they deal falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside, which is to say there is no place you can go to escape these people. You've got thieves that come into your house, and if you're outside of your house, you've got bandits on the road. The metaphor there is there's no place that's safe. They are totally corrupt, and they are totally rapacious. Verse 2, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them and are before my face. One of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 73, and I'm not going to go there because we don't have time right now, but basically Psalm 73 starts off with a guy saying, I see all of these people in the world. You know, the Clintons, the Obamas, the all of these people, and they're fat, and they're happy, and they're wealthy, and they have everything they want, and I am envious. And I was just about to slip until I went into the sanctuary of the Lord, and there I was shown their latter end. And one of the things that is said in Psalm 73 is these evil people say, God's not paying any attention. Nobody's watching me. I can do whatever I can get away with. Okay, that's part of that psalm, which is why this reminds me of that. The government who is being evil here and oppressing the people, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them, and they are before my face. In other words, you can't outrun the evil that you do, even though it seems that you may get away with it in this world. Verse 3, by their evil, they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. And again, I am talking about the state bureaucracy who is out there fleecing the sheep, and the money is coming back to the king and the princes. So it's, it's like Washington, you know, they've got their tentacles all throughout the country and all the money flows into Washington. But Washington is the only city in the country that never goes into recession. And real estate values never go down because the money always flows in there, and that's what's being talked about here. Verse four: They are all adulterers; they are like a heated oven, whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. Right? That another translation makes better sense of that. I'm in the Tanakh now. They commit adultery, all of them, like an oven fired by its by a baker who desists from stoking only from the kneading of the dough to its leavening. In other words, they've got this passion for adultery, like a hot oven. And the only time the baker ceases to put wood into the oven is when he's turning around and kneading dough and letting it rise. In other words, he, he would stoke it continually if he didn't have to let the dough rise. You understand? The metaphor here is they're, they're passionate for their adultery. Adultery not necessarily in the sexual sense, although that too but adultery in their turning away from God. And the only thing that stays the heat of their adulterous passion is when they have to turn around and knead the dough to get the next batch ready to go in this hot oven. Verse 5. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hands with mockers. Okay, now remember we said before... In verse 3, they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. So what is happening is all this wealth is flowing into the government. And then on verse 5, on the day of our king, the princes become sick with the heat of... In other words, they are drinking so much wine they become sick. And he stretched out his hand with mockers. He, the king, stretches out his hand with mockers. In other words, the people he surrounds him with. His advisors and so forth are mocking fools. This is a complete and thorough indictment of the government. Verse 6, for with hearts like an oven, here's our metaphor again, for with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue, all night their anger smolders, in the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. So again, this idea of their passion to do evil, They're, they're not just casually evil, they're passionate about it. Verse 7, all of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. And again, the idea here is the place is so corrupt. In in fact, we just read about a king that only lasts a month because of the corruption and the intrigue and so forth that is going on in the government. You have this constant turnover because people don't last very long because there are other people every bit as wicked as they are that are trying to get in there and take their place. Verse 8. Ephraim mixes himself with the people. Ephraim is a cake, not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. They do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. So the idea here is Ephraim has mixed with other nations like a cake not turned in other words it's burned on the bottom pancake that you don't flip and strangers devour their strength but they don't realize it in other words all of these strange gods and strange people that they're mixing with are sapping their strength but they don't realize it because they are so hot to trot and mix in with this multiculturalism to use again a modern term That's exactly what's going on here. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, and again, remember we talked about that earlier, that Israel is so hardened in its arrogance that their arrogance testifies of their spiritual condition. So the pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God nor seek him for all this. Things are so bad from God's point of view But they don't realize how bad it is. And what God is saying is it's all rotten. And all of this stuff is consuming your substance and you don't even have sense enough to turn and call on me. Verse 11. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense. Calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. In other words, Ephraim is silly like a dove. And they're trying to save themselves with alliances with Egypt and Assyria. Neither one is going to work. Verse 12. As they go, I will spread over them my neck. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made by their congregation. So all of this has been an indictment of the leadership of Israel who have been preying on their people. Metaphor is a dove. Trying to flip and fly away. God says, I'm going to throw a nut over them, like I would a bird. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask the people who they have oppressed what I should do with them. Do you remember what happened to Mussolini at the end of World War II? He and his family were dragged out and they were hanged in the public square in Rome. They were turned over to the people that they had oppressed. What God is saying here is, I will turn these people over to the congregation that they have oppressed. Verse 13, woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. So not only are they disobedient, not only are they faithless, but they are lying. And we have a government that also lies about God. Verse 14, they do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine they gash themselves, they rebel against me. In other words, things are going to get so bad, they're going to be so miserable that they're going to scream on their bed, they're going to be hungry, they're going to be thirsty. One of the things of pagan religions is to prove the sincerity of their prayers, they gash themselves with knives so that they shed their own blood. So the idea here is they're going to cry from the heart. And they're going to gash themselves just like pagans do. But they continue to rebel against it. 15. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt, and a group tries to flee to Egypt, and in Egypt it isn't, doesn't go well for them. So the whole idea here is when things get really bad, when they're up to their hips and hairy Assyrians, okay, which is going to happen shortly, they're going to scream, they're going to cry to the Lord, they're going to cut themselves, they're going to do all sorts of things because of their panic and their misery, and it isn't going to do any good. So like prayer. Et ta